the problems <clears throat> with, with going through books of the Bible and then giving them a thematic title is that for a better or worse, or what's worse, whether the text is actually saying what you say it's saying, or not, you maybe feel a little bit obliged to stick to the theme. And the case in point is, since the book of Philippians does have a repetitious use of the theme of, or the idea of joy, I've called this whole message series Unrelenting Joy. And in my first draft of this sermon, I felt I was squeezing the joy part a lot, uh, just not squeezing the Philippians part as much as I should. <laughs> and the word and idea of joy does show up in our text, but I was wondering if I was making too much of the term. And I've retained the title of my message because whether this text clearly says it or not, the fact remains that Paul at least says in Galatians, that a fruit of the Spirit, or a product of our faith in Jesus, is joy. Thus, we should have and we should find joy in our faith. But what does that look like and how is that truth shown today in our text? Because here's, here's the setup. Paul is leaning in here in Philippians. He's addressing some ideas of disunity in the Philippian church. Um, and, per, and perhaps it's such a given that it's hardly ever stated, but faith killers and church killers come about when disunity happens in a church. Uh, we hear sad stories, or heaven forbid, maybe we've been part of the story, but maybe a pastor leaves and a new one comes, and he's just too different from the previous pastor. And, and the direction that the new one wants to go excites some, but horribly disturbs others, and then... People want to fight for what they knew to church, knew the church to be, while the supporters think it's time for the old church to fade and the new one to rise. Disunity. And it sucks the joy out of a church. And it sucks the joy out of individuals. And I think Paul in our text will open with what is the point of the Christian life? We just sang it as if I took the words from this verse or something. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. And then Paul is going to move on in the next part of our text to live in the kingdom. And then lastly, he's going to look at to live together. To live is Christ. To live in the kingdom and to live together. That's our heading, and I gave it to you before we stood to read of the word of the Lord. So let's stand now if you're able to. And let's read together Philippians chapter... Two, or beginning in verse 1, verses 21, and then going into chapter 2. Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better indeed. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my coming to you again, your exaltation in Christ Jesus will resound on account of me. Nevertheless, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come to see you 
or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and it is from God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete of being like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, oh, sorry, um, or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Father, I'm not interested in opening up your word and just spilling out a few things I happen to read about and maybe think that would sound good. I'm interested in your voice alone. I'm interested in your Holy Spirit and what he's saying. And so I pray that you would open hearts and minds to hear your voice and not mine. Father, this as has been the case all day today. This is your hour, your day. This is your time. So please be speaking to us. And Father, please give us open hearts. Please help us to obey what you would call us to do. Not because it's scary, but it's exciting. Not because it means a lot of work, but it means a lot of joy and what you have created us to do. So we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Again, to live is Christ, to live in the kingdom, and then lastly, to live together. Our three movements again. To live is Christ... And we're going to look over verses 21 through 26. But as context for this, let us recall that Paul is in prison, likely in Rome, which seems like a great place to talk to people about how having joy. <laughs> and in this passage, he's, he's led up to, he's mentioned the fact that his imprisonment has actually served to further the kingdom more. Even though some have been preaching Christ out of envy and, and rivalry, in other words, they preached correct doctrine, but with false motives. So imprisonment and being abused in this way, Paul states this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This could easily become another one of those phrases we, we hear often. And if you grew up in the church like I did, it's a memory verse, it seems like, from our childhood. Well, what does it mean? To live is Christ. We have this phrase, we might hear it every now and then, blank is life. Insert whatever you want in the blank. In the fall, I hear football is life. Or some people say fishing or hunting or horses or hockey. Or you get the picture, it's a testimony to, to celebrating, enjoying, immersing in a hobby or a sport. Paul is saying Christ is life. One paraphrase says, living means living for Christ. And I believe we're to 21st century 
westernized, compartmentalized, everything fits in a box, if we have to ask, how does Christ is life work? Paul? Because it's more than just a few hours on Sunday. It's more than just checking boxes in the morning as I read my scriptures. It's more than just said a few prayers throughout the day. It's more. It's more than just putting money in the offering plate. It's more than just, I don't listen to those bands and those songs. I listen to these bands and these songs. It's more than just, I don't watch those TV shows. To live as Christ is more. Read the Old Testament stories and you'll find how people's entire lives played into God's plan. Hebrews 11 will thread the needle for you. See, Noah wasn't faithful because a forefather told him we are the Creator's people. Oh, I believe it. All right, you're a righteous man, Noah. No. Noah lived righteously, lived righteously before his Creator. Yahweh told him, my life for you is to build this boat, save your family, it'll be your legacy. Noah lived, 24-7 lived, into that legacy. He wasn't only building the boat on Sunday or Saturday, because it's Old Testament. It wasn't that he worked a little on the boat in the mornings before coffee and then before he went about his day. It wasn't that he checked his wages that he earned money with and sent a little bit off to the lumber yard here and there. No, God's purpose for his life became his life. That's living is Christ. And this is going to sound odd coming from a pastor, but it's true, it needs to be said. God's plan for you is not church on Sundays, scriptures every day, but then you have the rest of the time to do what you want to do. And thank God that it's true, or else I would get bored following him. Right? How would my sons feel if I told them, listen, I can give you two to three hours, one day a week, maybe 45 minutes most mornings, but other than that, I don't want anything to do with you. Right? No, I love them. I want to spend time with them. Christ, your Creator, has a plan for your life. And it will involve all of your life. And when life is over living for Him, then to die is gain. You're graduating from living for Him, which is the only life-giving, soul-satisfying thing you can do to finally meet with the source of your life and satisfaction. It's gain. But if I go on living in the body, says Paul, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. And if you haven't already caught on, Paul is not being suicidal here. He's not saying, hmm, living or dying, I'm torn between the two because I'm so sad, depressed and lonely and done with it. No. For the Christian, living and dying is just a difference between destinations. Hmm, do I want to stick around in my hometown or head out to that city over there? Not the difference between existence or non-existence, because to die is gain, it's to continue living. I desire to depart and be with Christ. Note the sense of immediacy here. I'm not saying Paul's phrase here was entirely stated to give a doctrine on what happens when you die, but the immediacy reminds me of Christ's 
phrase on the cross to the criminal. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says he desires to depart and be with Christ, which is far better indeed, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my coming to you again, your exaltation in Christ Jesus will resound on account of me. We see Paul's reasoning here, and it's a it's a good example. It will show up at the end of our chunk that we're studying, but Paul's reasoning for sticking it out, for continuing to live, is out of how much, quote, more necessary for his readers that he remains, for their progress and joy in the faith, as if I had a title somewhere in this passage for the sermon, <laughs> Joy in the Faith. One of the things so easy to see in our day and age, if you're really thinking about it, and I don't think many are, because it's so unacknowledged, is how totally, entirely, all-immersing our selfishness is. We are consumed with ourselves, obsessed. It is depraved, undeniably and arguably depraved, how much we love ourselves, love our choices, When a nation prides itself on giving people the choice to choose what gender they are, it has gone beyond ridiculous in the most serious of senses. As a society, we have gone from loyalty to state, nation, clan, tribe, family, guild, whatever, to loyalty to no one else but oneself. And to even propose that a tinge of loyalty or commitment should be selfless is for some reason considered wrong. It's giving power to someone else. Oh no. Paul, imprisoned wrongfully after no doubt what feels like a lifetime of trials, struggles. We're not talking emotional boo-hoos. We're talking multiple beatings, lashings, multiple, hear that, multiple shipwrecks, like not just once, left for dead moments. And after all that, he's not concerned about himself when it comes to life or death. He's concerned about others. And as if he's building on what he said earlier in the letter, the last point I made last week is that Christ must be glorified. Took that from verse 20. Paul says here again, the reason for his continuing to labor for their progress and joy in the faith is this. I liked how another translation says it. Verse 26, it says, And so, by my coming to you again, my goal is to give you even more reason to boast in Christ Jesus. Paul wants his hearers, the Philippian church, to truly understand, to truly progress, to truly take joy in their faith. He wants them to grow in Christ, to trust in Christ, to mature in Christ, Probably to live into the sort of life that produces the sort of Christian Paul is to where to live is Christ. What is the life that Christ gave you? I remember when Christy and I got married. I'm going off my notes. So, but I remember when Christy and I got married, we were gifted this devotional book for couples. And uh, we opened it up first nights, and, and uh, we started reading. We made it through the year. I think it was a one-year plan. But one of the things that struck me was, what is your goal as a couple? 
I was like, what? Because I think I come from this, uh, I liked her, she liked me, we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together, let's do it. What is your goal as a couple? What is your mission? And so what is the life that Christ gave you? Not just the gift of forgiveness, not just that one transactional moment, but day by day, what is the life that Christ gave you? Christ gave Noah an ark. He gave Abraham a new homeland. He gave Jacob a family and a legacy. He gave Joseph a kingdom. He gave Moses a mission. He gave Joshua land to conquer. He gave David a kingdom. What is the task, purpose, mission, family, legacy that Christ is saying, this is how it looks for you to live as Christ? I have a theory that many times Christians live their dream, live their lives, and wonder, why do I have these passions and dreams? Why am I so drawn to this? And maybe they just never acknowledge, maybe it's the life that God is calling you to live. Take that with a grain of salt. Some people get wacky dreams that need lots of counsel, of course. But next, it'll become more apparent as we look at the original language, but Paul moves to the point of, how is to how it is to live in the kingdom? It's the point of verses 27 through 30, I believe. It says, nevertheless, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This phrase, conduct yourselves in a man- manner worthy, could be rendered, perform your duties as citizens, such as of heaven. Paul's going to talk about Christians being citizens of heaven in Philippians 3.20. But the word where we get politics from is evident in this phrase in the Greek. Uh, There's the word where it says, um, conduct yourselves, is actually more live like a citizen. And this comes back to what Paul opened with. It's what I lingered over last week about how Christians are in Christ Jesus. My commentary said, and I bring it up again because it bears repeating, Christ is the very environment of the Christian's life. Believers live and move within the orbit of His will, His grace, His presence. We find life united by faith to Him, and we cannot live as we should apart from Him. This is how Paul is telling his hearers to conduct themselves. No, in the, in the 21st century and in democracies, we understand presidents should, they don't always, but presidents should be representative of the people. They should accomplish the will of the people, reflect the people, and so forth. Well, Christ and his kingdom is a kingdom, <laughs> and it's a monarchy. And thus, the king is exalted, and all the people are ambassadors, vassals, workers for the king. So we live in Christ Jesus and reflect him. We're citizens of his kingdom. And now I know, American, it's hard to break from this this ingrained cultural element that monarchy bad, democracy good. But you and I were built to be this way. It says right in Genesis, we were created to bear his image. Which means if we do what we made for, we thrive, we live, we find satisfaction to live in the kingdom, to be citizens of his kingdom. Paul continues, and he, and he moves from just the idea of citizens to comrades. I guess he's going Russian. No, he's not. He's not. But a military image, nevertheless, and he says, 
Thus, whether I come to you and see you and only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. Standing firm, side by side, contending for the faith. Philippi is a proud Roman colony, a proud Roman city, and it was actually the choice of many Roman military retirees. And so Paul is knowing his audience when he uses citizenship and military images. And knowing that he, Paul, is in chains for the gospel. And furthermore, they're only going further into Nero's empire. That's his emperor at the time. Perhaps Paul is suspecting, but instead of caving into persecution, instead of buckling under pressure, buckling under the fact that they were that they were just not liked, Paul is saying, contend. Contend for the faith of the gospel. Do you really believe the gospel? Does it really give life? And again, it seems like Paul is speaking into a church that was suffering from disunity, and it's why he's encouraging comradeship, contending side by side. The gospel is clear. The truth of what God says is clear. The reality that he brings life, joy, and peace is clear. And so now the progression of living in the kingdom as citizens to comrades finally transforms into champs. I wanted to use victors, but champs started with a C. So, verse 28 says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. And it is from God. There is this view of the end of the world that is for another sermon, but just know that the most popular view was heavily created and formulated, put together in the 1800s. Around the same time Mormonism came into being and Jehovah's Witnesses came into being and some of those other groups, so did the current popular left-behind style one-world government, worldwide persecution, all that found its solid creation and teaching in the 1800s. You could look it up. I'm not lying to you. And it's a view that's teaching the world is going to get progressively worse and everyone's going to hate Christians. And you're saying, don't you see it already, Pastor Kevin? And I think if the enemy wanted to terrorize Christians into stagnation and fear, Perhaps he'd come up with a way of viewing and twisting Scripture, since he probably knows it more than Kevin Davis does, into thinking that the way that God only wins is when the world loses. When Jesus preached a kingdom that is like a mustard seed that keeps growing, he preached a kingdom that doesn't wither or dwindle over time, but it grows and expands. Now, this doesn't mean Christians will never suffer or will suffer less, but I think it does mean that we can and will win ground for the kingdom. We're not going to lose it. I think it does mean that Christians should live, quote, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. And it is from God. So when there are violent ideologists who who wage a war of words and legislation, and want to take kids from Christian thinking, you can hold ground. When there are people who talk about the backwardness of Christianity, you can hold ground, unafraid and confident that God will and God does win in the end. 
No amount of words or legislation will change that. And in fact, under persecution, historically and always, what happens? Christ always grows. It's like the man who you kill, but oh, look at that, he resurrected and he's continuing to live. And in the same way, let's make martyrs and hang leaders and crucify those teachers. Oh, look, they just scattered and took the gospel to 70 other nations. And then Paul says something that I I don't think we like to hear or meditate over. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You hear how Paul sets this up as a gift? It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. A gift to knew the suffering that he knew, to feel the stigma he felt. Take up your cross and follow me, he said. I started listening to a lecture series on on holidays and their origins and their history, and I know some of you are like, that's just like Kevin. And the the, the why we do them, all of that, And the why we do them is what we might really call religious, hence holy day, holidays. But they are, like we practice on Sundays, performed rituals with deep meaning and symbolism so that going through them, we we live things that pass down for us for generations. That's why it only makes sense to have ham on Thanksgiving, right? And some of you say, no, no, turkey. And I say ham because that's what we always had, and I don't like turkey. Mom did have ham and turkey, but all all I remember is the ham. And my mom's creamed corn better be on that table or it's not Thanksgiving. These are necessities, part of the ritual that was passed down for generations. It's also why the one year I was chatting with my mom after all of us kids were out of the house, and she revealed that she thought she and my dad might join her mom and her sisters at a restaurant in Lewiston for Thanksgiving. I, I almost lost the food I was eating there. Because it felt like sacrilege, right? Eat out for Thanksgiving something is horribly wrong. But what about the families from big cities and two working parents where eating out was part of the tradition? For them, eating out is part of that warm memory, the tradition, the handed down part story of what is Thanksgiving in, in the family. And each family has their own unique personal, this is what Thanksgiving is, this is what Christmas is, this is what Easter is, and it's reliving the story How much like our meeting for worship is songs, prayer sharing, scripture reading, message week after week. It's it's performed ritual. It means something. It perpetuates the culture of something. And my point in in all of this is like, unlike any other religion, unlike any other religion, Christ brought meaning, purpose, value, and deep personal significance to suffering. Christ is God calling us to believe in him. And unlike Muhammad, unlike any other religious founder, unlike any other so-called deity, only Yahweh has become flesh and suffered for us and says, now when you do what I did, suffer, you will know that I am with you. You will know that I have gone before you. The author of Hebrews, many suspect Paul or someone close to him, writes in Hebrews 2.18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, He is able to help those who are being tested. 
You serve a Savior and Lord who suffered. And He grants His followers to suffer. And by suffering, the writers say He sympathizes with us. But I suspect the opposite is true as well. We begin to identify and to sympathize with Him. He suffered, I'm suffering. This is a taste of what my Savior did for me out of love. Paul is going to say in chapter 3 of this book, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to Him in His death. Peter, writing his first epistle, wherein suffering and trials are the primary themes of that book, he writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His footsteps. The point that's being made is that suffering when it comes to Christ's economy, it really isn't accidental. It's not just a tolerance that God has in His his providence. I will permit it. I'll, I'll let that guy suffer. But as Paul has said and as Peter has said, is that it is a gift and a participation in the sufferings of Christ. It's living out what our Lord and Savior has done. And you say, and there is joy in this? James, the brother of Jesus, would write, consider it pure joy. One translation would say, consider it nothing but joy, my brothers, that when you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? James explains. Here's why you should count it as joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance. Allow perseverance to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It goes back to Jesus. It's an odd saying, but it's in the Scriptures, and I'm not going to argue with it, but did you know that the Scriptures say that Jesus learned obedience? In the same book that he says it was he was sinless, because he is, a lack of knowledge does not equate to sinfulness, but the author who talked about he suffering by being tested so that He can help us. He also says, although He was a son, He learned obedience from what He suffered. We learn from suffering. We learn what Christ learned through suffering. When He grants us to suffer for Him, it's a gift. It's a gift. Meanwhile, in my sinfulness and shame, I often pray, Lord, give me the gift of humility without the humiliation. Lord, help me to learn this the easy way. Right? Nobody wants to suffer, but Christ adds value to suffering. He's the only deity, period, but for the sake of argument, the only deity who gives meaning to suffering and who has suffered before us so that when we suffer, we can participate with Him and in Him. It's a hard thing to grasp, and I'm trying to explain it. I hope the Holy Spirit brings its full meaning to you. I have one illustration. I'm a, I'm a history buff. And so, while I'm not saving money at all right now or making plans, but the ideas of visiting historical sites excites me. To see the Plymouth Plantation and how the pilgrims lived or to see the shores of Massachusetts Bay or to, even to go to the sites in the Holy Land or maybe the headwaters of the Missouri River where Lewis and Clark thought it was going to be the Pacific Ocean. But no, there's all these hills. And so... While people have made Jerusalem and Golgotha and other tracts of the Holy Land their meet with Jesus points in historical fashion, Christ has made suffering the place where we can meet with Him. 
in a very meaningful way. So let's regroup. In the book here in Philippians, Paul is encouraging unity. Unity, and he, and he exhorts us that to live as Christ, all of living as Christ, not just Sunday mornings, not just morning or evening devotions, not just prayer time, but Christ has a plan, purpose, and life journey plan for you. Are you living into that? No, I'm not. Pray about it. And he says that like-minded, or Christ as life Christians, ought to live as citizens in his kingdom. Again, that, that quote, where Christ is in the environment, where believers ought to live and move. And Christ has made everything meaningful, including the least wanted thing in life, suffering. He's made that extremely meaningful in his kingdom. And so Paul is finally mounting the attack. He's getting all of his persuasive skills, persuasive skills ready to encourage believers to live together. Our last point for the day in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, in other words, he's calling their, their character into question and he's going to make an appeal. He's laying out conditions that should be true and if they are true, then they should obey what he's calling them to. This is when there are two friends arguing over what to do next. Someone wants to do something risky, but the other holds back. So the one appeals to the other, if you love me, if you trust me, if you trust my judgment, right? If Christ has encouraged the Philippians, has he encouraged you? Has he encouraged us to know that the creator of the universe desires us and has died for us? Has he brought comfort from his love? Comfort when the world appears to be headed one way and it's not good. Has he brought comfort? When you feel guilty from sinning, does his teaching of forgive 70 times 7 bring comfort? When it seems you're alone, has he brought comfort? Paul says if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced when he brings illumination to his words? Have you heard that still small voice? Furthermore, if there's any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being united in spirit and purpose. Paul is appealing to their mind. Be like-minded, united in spirit and purpose, and you could say that he's appealing to their attitude. One of my commentators state, the apostle knew... Well, that thoughts and attitudes are the basis of speech and action, and so they direct the whole course of a person's life. This is the truth, because what you think and how you act is who you're going to be. And what's scary is that you and I have, or should have, control on what we think and how we act. (laughs) But our world, along with its extremely jacked-up sense of self-absorption and obsession, wants to perpetuate the lies of feelings and experiences that defines me. And and, and I've said this before, but one of the biggest things I recall from middle school, that public education system in Kamii, is that at the end of every morning announcement over the intercom was one simple statement. Make it a great day or not, the choice is yours. And I'm not saying, oh, mom died, but it's my choice, I'm going to have a great day. 
I get it. Sometimes things happen. Emotions take over. But many times people can be tired and hungry. So I'm in a state of depression. No, you're tired and hungry. Get over it. Muscle on through the day till you get some food and sleep, right? Like-minded, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. Pretty strong words. Is Paul calling for cookie-cutter Christians? I think he's calling for unity and thus calling for an end to disunity and schism and friction. And he says in verses 3 and 4, and I just gave a kid's message here a few weeks ago on verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. The NIV said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Not to steal Weeks' text and thunder entirely, but it's a good interpretation of this passage, since it's what comes right after. It goes back to Jesus. He is the supreme example of not doing anything out of selfish ambition or empty pride, but He valued us over Him. I've also said this before, but did you realize that God doesn't need you? Or me? He doesn't need us. He could have been completely satisfied fellowshipping with Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He could have said, what a sinful, rotten world. Why save Noah? He's just going to get drunk and pass out naked after I spare him and his family in the flood. I give up on these people. But instead, He sends His Son, Jesus. He sends Himself and the person and the work of the Son. And then even then, Jesus could have gone full-blown God on us. Pharisees don't like me? Prepare for Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0. We'll see who's right. Or you're upset that I'm speaking the truth and I'm claiming authority over the Scriptures I wrote? (laughs) Let me prove to you I'm God. But He didn't come here to prove anything. He already knew He's God. It's no skin off His back for those who didn't believe Him. He's completely confident in the knowledge of who He is, but He came here for us. He came here for unity. The biggest need of unity the reuniting man to God, and He valued us so much that He died even though He was right and everyone else convicting Him was wrong. He died for us and He rose again to show us that what He did works. He accomplished reuniting man to God. I don't know where this hits you. And as I said, I want to cautiously approach what we've preached about unity in the body of Christ. And I want to ask, can this speak to the idea of unrelenting joy? Can Perhaps we can take three cues from today and see how it speaks to us concerning joy in the faith. First, we can know that to live is Christ. A friend of mine said recently, the God of the Bible is exciting. The God of American Christianity, not so much. Among the many things he was getting at in the conversation comes back to what I was getting at. We've made God to be someone to approach on Sundays in prayer and some scriptures and a set of rules. But He calls us to life. He calls us to live. To live as Christ. And when we're building our boats, when we're heading out for our homelands, when we're founding our kingdoms, we will have unrelenting joy knowing that our faith is in the God who calls us to do these things and thus made us to do those things. Our faith should bring us joy to live in His kingdom as citizens. We're citizens of heaven with a king named Jesus doing His work, reflecting Him. We're comrades contending for His values and His faith in our culture. 
and will be champions even in suffering, knowing that suffering is what He grants us to partake in who He is. And then our faith should be bring us unrelenting joy as we strive to live together, following the example of Christ and knowing that joy is actually in the giving, not the getting. We as Christians should have a counter culture of humility. And I don't mean that cleverly or cutely, but seriously. Where, where the world values self-absorption and obsession, we should value valuing others above ourselves, like God did. Amen? Let's pray. Father, to live is Christ. We look in the Scriptures and sometimes we're content to believe that our walk with You amounts to a transaction we made one day a long time ago whenever we said yes and You forgave our sins and now I'm going to heaven. But as many pastors say, there's a dash between two dates on the tombstone. What are you doing with the dash? Father, what do you have us here to do? You call us into an entire kingdom. Your kingdom has persisted far longer than any kingdom on earth has. Your people are still everywhere on the world. You call us to be ambassadors and disciples. What do you want us to do to spread your kingdom? What task have you given us? Help us not to be afraid to, to dream big. And help us to be wise with our dreams, of course. But also help us not to shrink back from the things that you call us to because they will be scary or not make sense. Build a boat whenever it's never rained to save a family over a flood that I don't, I don't, there's so many things that you might call us to do. And I just pray you would give us open and obedient hearts to do what you call us to. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for your love your mercy and your forgiveness and grace. Thank you that your heart towards us is forgiveness. And thank you that you love us. And we pray that we would take the things we hear and that your spirit is currently applying to our hearts and minds and live them out. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.